Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Richard, Deputy Editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our Chief Critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our Senior Writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. <laughs> oh, I love that energy. <laughs> what a time to talk about awards. Um, although... On the it's, one hand, yes, but honestly, I'm like really excited for this episode because we have like a lot of stuff that I really love to talk about, and that yeah. has got me a little amped in this terrible time we live in. Isn't um, the presidency the greatest award? I mean, ultimately. <laughs> are you saying you're going to be the new president, Richard? I missed well, this uh, we'll line see. of succession. <laughs> Stay tuned, January twentieth. Yeah. Um, we do have a lot of good movies to talk about, and we also have awards to talk about. The Gotham Awards happened um, via Zoom last night as we record this. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to have an interview that our colleague Julie Miller did with Emerald Fennell, the writer and director of Promising Young Woman, yet another uh, very fascinating movie out there right now to talk about. Um, so but we'll get started with the Gotham Awards, which I've attended in the past, which I know you've attended in the past. It was, you know, a, a entirely virtual, I guess not entirely virtual, but like mostly virtual ceremony. It wasn't really an audience sitting at a table, but there were awards handed to movies that we like to talk about, which makes it really feel like award season. And um, Nomadland was kind of the big top winner, which I don't know, that seemed like a, like a likely outcome to me. Did it seem kind of predictable to you, to you guys? Well, yeah. I mean, I think partly because I also this weekend voted with the National Society of Film Critics um, and Nomadland won Best Picture with Mm -hmm. that group. So it just seemed like, okay, you're like, this is more of that roll out to to the big win. I mean, the Gothams don't do a best director prize. They do a breakthrough director. So I guess presumably the Nomadland win in picture was also a win for Chloe Zhao, who directed it. Um, I just feel like there's I mean, right now, I mean, who knows what's going to happen between now and April. (laughs) But but, uh, there just doesn't seem Richard, the world between now and April is completely predictable. There's no uncertainty in our future at all. (laughs) Just a smooth sailing for the next three months. I just feel like there's no stopping this movie. And for good reason. I mean, it's it's one of those, you know, awardsy juggernauts that also happens to be really good and is small and interesting and artful. And, you know, it's not some bulldozing studio product that feels just like made to win awards. It just happens to be a really good film that is winning a lot of awards. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like as much of an Oscar-y movie, quote unquote, but A, there aren't very many of those this year at all because a lot of studios held off their releases. And B, I think post-Parasite, we have to kind of acknowledge that, that term doesn't mean the same thing that it used to. So I think that would be the one thing that, like, you know, I, Oscar Pundit, would say, like, well, but will the Academy like it as much as the critics? And the Gotham Awards, which has historically, like, pretty critic-friendly taste comp- as opposed to, like, the Golden Globes or something. It's so interesting. That post-Parasite, you know, there was, there was like, an article that went around on THR 
I don't know, was it last week? I don't know. Time, yeah, what does, what does time mean, right? That this <laughs> idea that like Parasite opened the door for like weirder, more conventional Best Picture winners. There was a lot of pushback on it, right? Like mentioning that like Shape of Water won or, or you know, Moonlight or, you know, that this is like not just, ooh, Parasite, this weird wacky story of like sure. of, of class, whatever. But 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 you're right that it's it's cementing a narrative that is like, no, it's it's wild to me to talk about Nomadland as this best picture, you know, predestined winner or something like that when people haven't seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's always yeah. weird to me. And and usually there are films like that. We've talked about that in years past, like Call Me By Your Name. But it's not usually like the big front runner that people haven't seen yet. You know what I mean? So that's kind of a, a fun extra quirk of this year. Yeah. And you're never going to get the like box office receipts that like for Parasite, I think in particular, like it was a huge in theater hit and the VOD hit by the time it won Best Picture. Um, and we're not really going to have those same numbers. Um, so it, that's an interesting wrinkle in who has and hasn't seen Nomadland. And one of the one of the pushbacks to the um, THR article that you mentioned, Joanna, was that the, the writer kind of said that Parasite for other, you know, for many reasons, but one of it uh, was was a kind of an outlier winner. But one of them was that it didn't have like a clear message. And people were like, if you don't think Parasite has a message, <laughs> you're not listening to that movie. Um, yeah. But I think you could almost sort of turn to Nomadland with that same, I think, pretty blinkered gaze and be like, OK, well, what is Nomadland about in a big capital A way that like is Oscar, you know, awards you friendly and, you know, it is about American economy and displacement and the treatment of the elderly and the f- threadbare social safety net and all this stuff. I mean, it is about a lot of things. It's about Amazon. But whether or not it says enough or, you know, says it loudly enough, like, I, I don't know. But I-, I can't imagine that, like, Americans struggling amidst the beautiful vistas of this country like that will resonate with a lot of voters across a- an ideological spectrum an age spectrum. You know, so the message might be harder to tease out than Parasite, which is all about a message. But uh, I think there is enough of it there, enough kind of political connection to the here and now um, that will it will seem not only like the worthy artistic choice, but also the worthy sort of movie for our times, you know. I think a, a big question, like message wise and also uh, topicality wise, is that of the movies remaining to come out, um, and we're going to talk about some of them later on, there are a lot that are about black identity um, mm-hmm. and coming in a year that has featured all of these protests about racial justice. I think that's a that's a major element of the world right now that isn't really part of Nomadland. And I wonder if that is how the narrative might shift when things like One Night Miami and United States versus Billie Holiday and Judas and the Black Messiah start premiering and um, kind of capture their share of the zeitgeist. Well, to that end, I mean, I think Nicole Bahari winning for Best Actress at the yeah. Gotham's mm-hmm. um, for Miss Juneteenth, a movie that was at Sundance and got, you know, pretty strong reviews and, and and then had a sort of quiet, but I think sort of steadily building release. That's really exciting. I mean, it puts her, um, you know, she hasn't really shown up at the Critics Prizes yet. I mean, you know, I can speak kind of vaguely that like she did definitely get a lot of votes during the, you know, the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics uh, votes that I was a part of. And so it hopefully, you know, moves her more into the sort of forefront of the conversation uh, very deservingly uh, for that for Miss Juneteenth, but also just her body of work is really strong. You know, so that was that was an exciting thing because it was another bit of representation from a movie that wasn't expressly about, you know, sort of issues of racial justice. You know, it's just about a black woman and her family, um, you know, and the the sort of history of 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 their family and trying to maintain a sort of legacy and, and momentum. You know, so I think that was interesting. But then you also have, you know, the more sort of politically charged things like One Night in Miami, um, which um, Kingsley Benadir did win an award for Breakthrough Actor at the Gotham's. 
And so the Gothams are so interesting because they, you know, I, I sometimes forget what their categories are. And so I was like scrolling through the winners and I was like, Riz Ahmed for best actor in this Chadwick Boseman economy. And then I got down to the bottom and then I saw that they have like an actor, actor spotlight award as well. And Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis are represented there. And so it's just sort of like, oh, OK, I see. Like we're spreading the wealth around. And it's like with the Kingsley Benadir win, you know, there's just like all this opportunity to recognize people, which is what I would prefer at an award ceremony. I don't know if that sounds like too Northern California participation trophy. More awards for more like, people. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I, lo- I love seeing Riz Ahmed represented there because, as I've been saying, I, I think he's incredible um, in Sound of Metal. And I also love seeing Nicole Bahari in there. Um, I feel like Miss Juneteenth, for some reason, over the last couple weeks before this was announced, I was just seeing more people talk about that film like on Twitter and stuff like that. I think when so. she got nominated for the Gotham, it put a spotlight on the movie itself. Mm, and, then, yeah. and then her win should only continue to do that. Excellent. Um, but I think that's something that you get from the Gothams and the Indie Spirits sometimes when you have like Chadwick Boseman, who I think is still like very much the odds on favorite to win Best Actor. They're like, okay, well, he is going to have his moment. Like he has a, a big spotlight on him already. Let's give it to Riz Ahmed. Like, I don't know if that's their thinking, but I think that's the impact of something like this where people are like, oh, wow, Riz Ahmed. Or um, the supporting actor in Sound of Metal, who keeps Paul winning support? Paul Racy. Like, I think people are are giving him an award for it in a similar way, being like, hey, hey, you need to pay attention to this movie. And I think that's a really great purpose that these precursors can serve, especially in this stretched out award season, where like I think there are probably plenty of Academy voters who haven't started yet. And they're this is going to set the template for them with more time to to kind of change their minds than there would be normally. Yeah, absolutely. I think that these precursor things are are, are great for that, especially this year, because they're like you said, Katie, there is this longer runway. I think that something is interesting about the Bozeman of it all is, you know, he won a supporting actor for Five Bloods at uh, New York Film Critics Circle and then won runner up for supporting actor uh, at National Society of Film Critics. Delroy Lindo won best actor for, at both of those, you know, awards uh, votes. And I do see just looking at this voting, I do see Chadwick splitting the vote often. Mm-hmm. Um, where people, some people are voting for him for best actor for Ma Rainey. Some people are doing supporting actor for Defy Blood. Some people are doing supporting actor for Ma Rainey. I mean, that's going to, ch- you know, the Academy will have very official, you know, sort of like slotted, ca- you know, where, where people yeah. are being submitted. But I don't know. I think there, I think there is weirdly a chance that in, in the very understandable and not at all undue uh, rush to celebrate his work and his life, there will be a sort of flood that goes in two different directions and could, I don't know, somehow affect his chances of actually winning. But we shall see. I just thought that was an interest watching that actually kind of play out yeah. over two long votes, you know, in the past mm-hmm. month or so. I was like, oh, that actually is something that like could happen. And Netflix, which has both of those movies, might need to like re- like concentrate its strategy on on one performance. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like uh, we've talked about this, I think a little bit more off air than on, but awards publicists are being really focused in their in what projects they're lifting up um, this year, mm-hmm. um, much more so than I've seen in years past. And um, the fact that both of those films are at Netflix, I think at least affords an opportunity for there to not be that split. And Netflix can just be like, no, absolutely. You know, and, and awards publicists, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, because I'm not part of, I am part of an awards body, but not one that I think gets as much targeted focus from publicists as you know, Academy voters do and stuff like that. So I feel like Netflix will be able to get their messaging out that like, no, this is where we want you to focus your Chadwick Boseman adulations this year. Um, yeah, I think, we'll you know, 
Um, like it, to me, it seems like the likeliest scenario is that he gets nominated twice for supporting for Defy Bloods and for lead for Ma Rainey. And from there, the kind of the attention solidifies. That tends to happen when someone is double nominated that or, you know, I think about when Kate Winslet that was being kind of uh, falsely campaigned for supporting for the reader in the Academy. I was like, nope, she's best actress. And then she went ahead and won. I don't know that the danger of him getting not winning either would come up unless like somehow Netflix doesn't really focus their efforts on one or the other. But I would assume that once the nominations are out, they can say, all right, give Chadwick Boseman best actor and kind of go from there. But then, well, but I think that if kind he got of the gives, double, yeah. it's kind of, um, is hard on Delroy Lindo, who is uh, another Netflix competitor in best actor, but that, that's the choice Netflix is going to have to make a lot with a lot of competitors. Yeah. And the problem is if he got the double nomination, some voters are going to say, check the box and supporting some best actor. It's like, you need the concentrated, yeah. you know, support in one category, which you're right. has, you know, does happen. I mean, Holly Hunter for the piano versus the firm or whatever, you know, it, it, yeah. there, there is precedent for it certainly. But yeah, that's the other thing is, you know, Riz Ahmed winning at the Gotham's and, um, you know, he did very well at the vote that I did this weekend and, and Delroy Lindo again won at National Society of Film Critics. Um, and and there are these other great performances, Anthony Hopkins and The Father, which weirdly has not gained a lot of traction in the way that I thought it would. Um, I think there's just a lot of competition, I guess. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm not at all saying that I, you know, I think Chadwick Boseman is incredible in My Rainey. Um, it's such a vivid and, and, and lovely performance. Uh, you know, there's a lot to choose from it. Just like there's certain, a certain one of the choices in, in Bozeman just feels a bit more weighted because of circumstances. And, um, you know, that's fine. It's just like, I think that if you're, like you said, Katie, like if you're Netflix and you're like, we have this amazing, like career defining work by this actor who's been in things forever in Delroy Lindo, mm -hmm. but it's just not the right year for it. Yeah. No. Can I can I be petty about something for a second? Sure. Um, so have last, you listened to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> last last fall, when I was like sort of starting to really see what was on offer, I think it was probably after I watched Sound of Metal and really felt like Riz deserved a nomination. I was like looking at the Best Actor category, and I was like. I'm, I'm sure I wasn't the first to notice this. I'm definitely not the last to notice this. But this proliferation of non-white talent in that category specifically, that you have a potential to have a Chadwick Boseman, a Delroy Lindo, a Steven Yin, a Riz Ahmed, um, and like Anne Kingsley maybe Benadir. A, Kingsley Benadir. Um, I feel like we're not talking about Gary Oldman and Mank the way that a lot of people, like at the time, mm -hmm. a lot of people were sort of sneering at me and saying like, obviously it's going to be Gary Oldman or obviously it's going to be Anthony Hopkins, et cetera. And I'm just sort of like, I, they could still get nominated easily but like i feel like mank is sort of other than the great narrative around amanda like i feel like mank has sort of fallen out of the conversation a bit and um, mank sank i mean yeah <laughs> I would not say know, sank. And, and the father uh you know i still have my post-it from richard like predicting that anthony hoff is going to win for the father i still think that that film sort of like maybe miss juneteenth hasn't like even had its chance to fully shine mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. do you know what i mean so it hasn't been forgotten is it open? <laughs> I actually don't even know if it's available to audiences. I'm going to be honest. I have no idea when movies are out now. I, I, don't, I, don't, I genuinely I don't, don't know. <laughs> it's, really, it's really hard to know. Um, and, you know, even Netflix, which has been, you know, able to get things to people immediately, still has Malcolm and Marie coming. Um, but, yeah, there, there's still a lot left to come. Um, do you want to pivot to talk about One Night Miami uh, on this Kinsley Benadir topic? Because um, I was looking back at – I feel like I remember there being some fuzziness about how they're going to accept the supporting versus lead acting designations in this movie because it's mm -hmm. kind of all silly because it's basically four leads, um, which they're never going to be able to campaign as. But it does seem like Kingsley Benadir and this Gotham Award will really cement it is the breakout who is going to kind of push this boat forward. Which makes sense because the role he plays, I mean, he's playing Malcolm X, yeah. uh, who in this film, you know, brings the other three guys together to have this kind of 
you know, very heavy, far ranging conversation about their celebrity and their role in the civil rights movement. Like he is the kind of centerpiece of it in that he is the kind of inciting event yeah. of it. So um, One Night Miami is available Friday, right? This yes. Friday? Yes. Mm-hmm. On yeah. Amazon. On Amazon. But, you know, it's been kicking around the conversation ever since Regina King won a directing prize for it. Um, I watched it back in October, and then I watched it again last night, and I had two really different experiences watching it both times. But I think the second time, Kingsley Benadire's performance really, to me, rises above the other three performances, even though they're all tremendously great. They're all great. I think his, he, like, it's something to do with, I think, impression versus embodiment or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. w- when you look at the depictions, of, you know, the, the um, it's Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, uh, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm, Malcolm X, X in a fictional night in Miami after... Mama Lee, then Cassius Clay sort of beats Sonny Liston. And the performances, Leslie Adam Jr. does a great job as Sam, like a great job as Sam Cooke. Not that we're surprised. And one of the pleasures of the movie is like the music, <laughs> listening to Leslie Adam Jr. do this incredible Sam Cooke stuff. Like it's yeah. really, really, really good and fun. But like I was talking to Katie a little bit about this via text last night. Watching Kingsley Benadire, it's not like any version of Malcolm X that I've ever like seen or thought of. And uh, I was like watching and I was like, man, there's like a lot of Obama in his performance. And then I remembered what Katie had told me is that he had played Obama concurrently for the Comey role for Showtime. But then I watched his scenes in the Comey role and his Obama is nothing like this, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think versus a lot of other actors in that uh, Showtime miniseries about Jim Comey and Donald Trump are doing hardcore, like Brennan Gleason is doing a Donald Trump impression. I think Kingsley Benadire's approach to these real life, very famous real life figures, way less focused on impression. And in that way, that performance uh, draws me in more. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. it does. And I, I think the movie, um, you know, which is based on a play, I think it's really careful to depict Malcolm X very much in opposition to the way that he was depicted in white media at the time and, and maybe still is, you know, as this kind of uncompromising firebrand radical, you know, some of his ideas were radical, but in the right direction, you know, but you know, this, this one, this, this movie really, I don't, I'm not going to say it softens him because I, 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 there were, you know, no doubt softer sides to his character in real life, but it just, it, it, it it's a quieter take on the real person than maybe Spike Lee's film is with Denzel Washington, but no less realistic for it, you know? And so deliberately just, humanizing, I think. Like, yeah. you put these four guys in a hotel room and they're going to, like, talk shit and also, like, have conversations about really big ideas. Like, it's all of those things existing in, in one person, which is how people are. Well, yeah, especially these public figures. And so yeah. you get this kind of peek behind the curtain. And this is a conversation that actually happened. We don't know actually what was spoken about, but these people did hang out that night in Miami. Oh, you know? okay. For some reason, yeah. I thought it was... Completely fictionalized. Uh, the the content is fictionalized. Exactly. Yeah. Not the event. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Right. Um, yeah, it, and they talk about persona, specifically as it pertains to Malcolm X, the public-facing mm-hmm. persona versus the, like, what it's like to hang out with him. And so I think that, you know, gives you some room to have a, a vastly different angle on him. But there's just, like, this... I just think Kingsley Benadire is so good in this role. There's so much world-weariness on him 
and anxiety at the same time. And my experience watching One Night in Miami, like when I watched it in, in October, maybe I was distracted that day, whatever. I don't know. We, we, we're we all going to have to have a really real, real conversation about what it's been like to try to be like critical about film in the era when we're watching it at home with all the distractions that come along with that. You know what I mean? And I do think the first half of the movie is a slow build to a phenomenal second half. And so I I remember feeling like a little restless the first time I watched it and stuff like that. This time, I think knowing that the payoff was coming, I was sort of riveted throughout, which maybe I would have been if I had been in a theater the first time. Mm. Um, But does that make sense? Like that, Mm -hmm. I, I think I think if you watch the film on Friday and you start, you know, if you're listening to this, you haven't seen it yet. You watch the film on Friday and you're starting to watch it and you're like. Is this as good as everyone says? I think it just like like any good piece of theater really just builds and builds and builds and builds, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I saw it at uh, Toronto, at Toronto uh, in September and haven't been able to revisit it since. So it seems, you know, I'm getting to the point in this especially long award season where it's like, do I remember First Cow all that well? I need to, it's time to start revisiting. <laughs> yeah. So I look forward to seeing this one again. Yeah, when I rewatched Promising a Woman, which I hadn't seen in, since Sundance almost a year ago, uh, I was like, oh, all these scenes that I literally could never have recited. You know, I had no idea these movies were in, were in the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, we are in a, in a weird year where it's like kind of necessary to revisit things. I revisited this, too, as well, Joanna. And and you're right. I mean, I think it's also been interesting with The Father and Ma Rainey and now this to look at play adaptations this year. I think all three of which are very successful. And I think, you know, I, I wrote something for our special issue about the sort of best picture front runners and something that I wrote about this and about Ma Rainey, um, especially is that like, I kind of, I don't mind that it feels like a play, you know, like it, it, it because it's so focused on performance and writing that like a director like Regina King um, in this case, or uh, George C. Wolfe in Ma Rainey's case, like they just kind of gently corral the language into the shape it needs to, you know, and like keep things moving along. But like, really, we're just there to listen and to to enjoy these great performances. And 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 so I, I you know, and, and in, a, in a year when we are denied any sort of really live performance, like this feels like a nice approximation of the real thing with also some cinematic touches. So, yeah, I would say if anyone is nervous about the like, oh, is it going to feel too stagey? Like, just kind of lean into it. And there's so much there to kind of enjoy um, and it's more simple, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not huge spectacle, but it is, um, it's de- definitely engaging regardless. <laughs> I texted my sister last night and I said, how do you know when a film is based on a play? And she's like, uh, four locations max, uh, so much talking. Yeah. As soon as you see, if you, if you didn't know already, as soon as you see like four legendary figures spending a lot of time in one hotel Walk room, into you're a like, room together, like yeah. oh, it's a play, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so good. And, and I was thinking about Regina King as a director like you know she's getting these adulations the the narrative is like what can she do all this sort of stuff like that and and it is interesting because it's not a showy cinematic um experience but you you know you hear that phrase actor's director right or an actor turned director and and the performances are just incredible and then also there's one point in the film where um Leslie Odom Jr. as as Sam Cook mentions Green Book, and I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Like, like the the physical Green Book, and I was like, "Thank God, I'm not watching Green Book." You know what I mean? But it's the kind of story, a like for us by us sort of real conversation about the civil rights movements, about obligation, about celebrity, about black identity, all this sort of stuff that like you feel like no one has 
fumbled this <laughs> delivery of it. Uh, if that we, we, yeah, sense. we should also say it's adapted by Kent Powers from his mm-hmm. own play. Um, and right. he also was the co-writer and co-director on Soul. Um, so he's having a fascinating year. Yeah. Um, kind of like it's, it's it feels like he came out of nowhere because all of a sudden he has these two giant projects. Obviously, he's, obviously he's been working for a long time, but he's certainly one to watch, too. So One Night Miami, watch it. Yeah. It's Friday on Amazon. So I wanted to also talk about another movie that's out this week, uh, somewhat briefly, but MLK FBI is an uh, IFC documentary that is going to be available to rent this week. Uh, and it is coming out the same week as the trailer for Billie Holiday versus the United States. And then um, also people are going to start talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. And these are three movies that have this kind of incredibly timely overlap where they are all movies about really prominent black people in the 1960s who were being targeted by the American government and the FBI. Um, And, you know, these are all stories that were known to some degree or another. Like I think maybe most people know that Martin Luther King was targeted by J. Edgar Hoover. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, But I think a lot of people don't necessarily know who Fred Hampton is, who is um, played by Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black Messiah. And then, you might know who Billie Holiday is, but not know um, the extent to which she was targeted by the FBI. Um, we're going to talk about all these movies in more detail um, because Judas and Billie Holiday are both coming out in February. Um, but watching the Billie Holiday trailer in which you see uh, Trevante Rhodes as the FBI agent who was hired by the head of the FBI narcotics division to basically tail her. I don't know. It's just all very visible and right there on the surface. And it's kind of remarkable to see all of these films uh, touch on each other. Um, but MLK FBI coming out this week. Maybe it's a great place to start because it's the documentary. It's about maybe, you know, probably the most famous of these three people. And it's it. I think even if you think you know the story, it's kind of shocking to watch all the archival footage and watch how this incredibly intense surveillance of Martin Luther King as he was doing amazing things, um, how how intensely he was being um, targeted by the FBI at the time. Have you yeah. guys seen MLK? FBI? It's really, it's really, I mean, it's, it's damning, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, I mean, I, I don't mean this pejoratively at all. It's an information dump, you know, it's just like, here is all of this stuff that the FBI was doing that only recently, I think became a matter of any sort of public record. Yeah. Um, it's taken a long time for all the pieces to kind of come to light. And I think some of it still is sealed. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and I, and I think that, you know, the, one of the more, provocative things if not the you know the most provocative thing in the film is that it walks up to the line of saying the fbi killed him um and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't cross that line um and you know m- plenty of people perhaps some of us on this podcast think that that actually is the case of what happened i don't do you guys remember when the comedian uh jabuki uh young white like um he changed his photo and um twitter name to the fbi and yeah. made a joke about <laughs> how they killed <laughs> martin luther king and uh he got like Twitter banned for like a month he's or something. He's been like Twitter banned multiple times. Oh, it's like, like his, right it's like his like shtick now. I mean, it's yeah. really, he's great. People should follow him. But, but you know, like, so th- this is, th- this is not new information for plenty of people that the FBI was disinvolved, but I think in the way that it's um, excessively packaged, it's compelling, you know, these are, these are things that we really need to know, you know, especially yeah. considering the way the FBI is held in such you know, suspicion, yes, but also high regard. I mean, it's interesting watching, you know, given what happened in Washington last week, like people now kind of tweeting at the FBI or, you know, imploring them to arrest this person and arrest that person. And, and yeah, I don't disagree that the people that they're, they're, you know, speaking about should face some consequences for what they did or helped, you know, incite. But like, you know, the FBI is still the same FBI in a lot of ways. And like, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily an institution that we should turn to uh, very often for a sense of righteousness or justice. And, and this film uh, makes plenty clear uh, why, why, you know, why we should be skeptical of, you know, an institution that J. Edgar Hoover built. And he was a very corrupt person. 
Oh, I saw J. Edgar. I that they thought. Oh, we right. Yes, age. exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that the movie, Ar- the Army Hammer film, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, MLK FBI uses all these old footage of like. Hollywood movies that were like, I don't know if they were sponsored by the FBI, but like obviously made in cooperation with the kind of kind of helped turn the G-Men into this American icon. And it's like built a propaganda machine around it, basically. And it, it really holds that in very stark contrast to what they were actually doing to uh, Martin Luther King and a lot of other people at the time. Well, yeah, there's also that, that there was that movie Seaberg with Kristen Stewart that I saw at Venice last year about um, the actress Jean Seaberg, who was involved with the Black Panthers as a, as a sort of ally uh, and was targeted by the FBI. I would say it's a little more compelling to see movies about <laughs> about the actual Black Panthers and civil rights leaders who were targeted than it is Kristen Stewart in some cool 60s fashions. Uh, yeah. And Judas and the Black Messiah, I think, will have it has a lot of that. It's coming. It's going to be on HBO Max February 12th. I, it's still embargoed review wise, but I do believe people are going to be able to talk about it on social media this week. I think mm-hmm. we're going to be talking a lot about Daniel Kaluuya and Licky Stanfield from, from here on out. Um, Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton, who you might remember is also a minor character in the trial of Chicago seven, which is just a, another way everything keeps echoing each other this year. Um, and it, it's kind of a big sprawling movie, but in a lot of ways it's a two hander between him and Lakeith Stanfield, who is the FBI informant who's been sent to infiltrate the Chicago black Panther party and, you know, plenty of terrible things unfold from there. Um, I, and yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. And, and I think the announcement that Kaluuya is definitely running and supporting, I think, shot him very far to the front of that. that He's race. really amazing in this movie. I mean, there's yeah. there's one kind of central scene that is really heavily promoted in the trailer where he's speaking. I think it's is it an auditorium or a church. I can't remember. It's so he's I speaking it's in front an of auditorium a, and in front of a big audience. And he's just magnetic. I mean, we've seen him in Get Out. We saw I mean, I think about him in Widows where he's like has a like, a you know, there's even more intensity to him than in Get Out, which might be the closer parallel to this, but it's kind of a, another brand new side of this actor who kind of keeps leveling up every time we see him in a new movie. Um, yeah, I think they're both amazing in it, though. Uh, and then finally, as I mentioned at the top, the trailer for uh, United States versus Billy Holiday came out. It's coming to Hulu at the end of February. It had originally been, who had it originally? Was it Lionsgate? Who was well, we were going to release it. Oh, <laughs> a little, a little Goldman production. But then our yeah, company yeah. folded uh, yeah. after mismanagement of funds. Mm, yeah. Um, so anyway, that movie will uh, become widely available at the end of February. It's directed by Lee Daniels, uh, Andre Day playing Billie Holiday. I mean, you hear in the trailer that she just sounds like Billie Holiday. It's it's pretty remarkable. So I am I'm eager to get a closer look at that, and I think we'll be able to talk more about the um, many historical overlaps between all these movies when they come closer to being released. Okay, and then one more thing that is out this week, because the content keeps coming. Um, Richard, you saw Locked Down, which mm. uh, when I heard the description of a movie about Anne Hathaway and Chantal Ejiofor being in, uh, like locked in during the pandemic, I was like, nope, I don't I don't want it. I like them. I don't want to watch a movie about people locked inside. Yeah. And then I heard there was a diamond heist, and then I was more interested. Uh, yeah. So tell, tell me where it landed. Yeah, no, it's, so it's, it's just two of them uh, in London. Um, through a series of kind of convoluted things, they they decide to steal a diamond uh, from Harrods, the um, you know Lux department store in central London. You know, it's such a fabulous setup. It's it's such a fun idea, and the movie is actually horrible. Oh, <laughs> it's no. so bad. Um, it was written by Stephen Knight, who Hathaway worked with on um, Serenity, the crazy you know movie from last <laughs> oh, year. Yeah. So was like, and, and, and was like, more of that, please. Yeah, I don't I don't understand. Being like, this is terrible. Give me you know, give me a second helping. Um, oh. It's just such a fun premise, and it just it it is. Uh, you know, Doug Lyman directed it, but like, who, who really, there's like no direction really. It's, it, it's all about this God awful screenplay, um, that is just so pretentious and snide and 
uh, I'll have a review out that people can read um, by the time this uh, episode airs. But like, ooh, it's, uh, you know, they're good in it and they're sex- sexy and fun and, you know, clever, whatever. Like they're they're doing their work. But um, there's something about the movie that, you know, I, I don't begrudge anyone's reaction to this year or last year um is particularly the quarantines and lockdowns and stuff like that uh as long as they were doing something safe you know but uh i don't really side with the idea of like all of this is just some sort of cosmic nuisance to my life i i i responded more to it as being like well I, this is for safety and you know whatever and and this movie is very much one that falls on the side of cosmic nuisance rather than like obligation and in terms of like staying inside and quarantining and all that stuff uh, and I, so I just couldn't get on its wavelength f- from the get. Uh, and mm. then everything that followed is just like, ooh, clunky, clunky, clunky. So it's going to be on HBO Max. You can, people can watch it pretty easily. But uh, I, I can't say I'd recommend it. What percentage of it is like Zoom-based conversation? Not too much. Okay. Uh, there is some stuff with um, Chuel Ejiofor's family live in, in, in the United States and New York. Um, so he has conversations with them and then there's stuff with Anne Hathaway is like works for a marketing company or something at a high level. And, and so she has work zooms uh, with people like Mindy Kaling and uh, Ben Stiller and um, uh, Stephen Merchant. But like they're short little interludes. It's mostly these two people talking in, in their fabulous London mansion with a big backyard. So it's like, why are you even complaining about being stuck at home? Like, uh, yeah, just a yard the, in yeah, London? Yeah, a backyard in a beautiful townhouse. Um, it's a very unsympathetic movie. I mean, I mean, I have hard, I have a very hard time being sympathetic to anything in the movie. So, yeah. um, you know, but if, if, if you felt, you know, a certain rage, uh, during the early stages of, of quarantine, uh, either here or abroad, um, maybe you'll relate to it more than I do. I was trying to think if there was like a zoom based production that has come out this last year that I actually enjoyed. And the only answer that I can come up with is staged. I don't know if you guys have watched any of that, but that's available on Hulu, though it's a British import. And it's Michael Sheen and David Tennant. And it's sort of like a we were supposed to put on a play, but we can't because the pandemic. So let's do. And it's it's just very like if you like, you know, the the sort of Rob Brydon, Steve, uh, Steve Coogan stuff like, you know, that kind of low-key British self-deprecating snarky snarky humor stuff um I really like staged and uh they got they roped in Kate Blanchett and Phoebe Waller-Bridge a bit for season two so what's what's not to like um but it's really hard to pull off yeah zoom conversation as like interesting filmmaking you know well there was that movie host it was a horror movie it's like under an hour it's it's really short but um about these girls who um basically do a seance over zoom with each other and then something bad <laughs> happens mm-hmm. and it's actually pretty good, but watching locked down, which I think was written way earlier. I mean, in the, in the movie they're talking about, Oh, another two weeks of this. And it's like, Oh, people <laughs> just, just wait. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, you know, you hear the zoom noise of like the window opening. I, I'm not going to try to synthesize it, but you know, you know, that sound. Oh, uh, no. and I was just like, I can't, I don't, I don't want no. this. I don't want this. I just want movies to wait. And not yeah. be about this, frankly. It genuinely makes me yeah. want, because like this is obviously a huge monumental period in history. Like we may be having references to Zoom meetings for the rest of our lives, but like, will I ever be ready for it? Am I always just going to be like, no, I need something else, an escape <laughs> from this? Yeah. 
Yeah, give me a phone call. Give me a, I mean, I don't care. <laughs> like, I just don't <laughs> want the sort of, and, and the jokes are all the same. That's the thing that I think really bothers yeah. me is that like, it's like the same observations, like, oh, they're not wearing pants, you know, but they're dressed from the waist up, you know, like, okay, we get it. Like those were sort of clever in April, but it's yeah. January the year, the next year. Like I, I, I just wanted, you know, we, we need, we need this kind of like trope i guess to to evolve and it, and and locked down i think is not an evolution in the in the slightest do you guys want to talk about a piece of entertainment that feels like it wasn't made in the pandemic at all yes take <laughs> me out of this pandemic please i'm gonna take you all the way back to 1950 no um yeah wandavision is the first kevin feige led marvel cinematic universe foray into land of television on disney plus uh it starts this friday with two episodes um and i think a lot of people even people who have not watched the mc this is what i'm anecdotally a lot of people even people who have not watched any of the marvel movies and this is true the mandalorian too in terms of roping in non-star wars fans are excited about this show because it feels like a really glossy like big production value intriguing um, actors we like piece of television in a time where there's a lot of content but that particular kind of content feels scarce to me for some reason and so here we have WandaVision and also because of COVID um, actually the first Marvel uh, Disney Plus show was supposed to be Falcon and the Winter Soldier which would have been a much more conventional like Iron Man of TV shows foray into this new era of Marvel storytelling um, but they had to flip flop because WandaVision was closer to completion than the other one was and so WandaVision is the debut and it is kind of a big swing honestly uh, weirdness wise what it asks you to to be on board with and that's kind of fun because I think Marvel especially because I think Marvel for a long time maybe less post Guardians of the Galaxy but for a long time was sort of being accused of being samey or flattening or or pushing out experimental storytelling for the sake of this one kind of like superhero thing. And here we have WandaVision, which to give you like very basic premise centers on these two uh, very, 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 very powerful comic book figures, the vision played by Paul Petney and uh, Wanda Maximoff, AKA the Scarlet Witch played by Elizabeth Olsen. She can like bend reality. He is an all knowing <laughs> Android. Um, and they are uh, experiencing something together, which is sending them through basically TV sitcom, family sitcom history. Um, this is based off of something that Kevin Feige, head of Marvel, said uh, that I thought was really charming as he was talking about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe justified all the time he spent as a kid playing with his action figures in the backyard. This is him now trying to justify all the time he spent watching Nick at Night as a kid. And so... You know, we get the Dick Van Dyke show, we get Bewitched, we get um, the Brady Bunch slash the Partridge family, we get, you know, Up Through Roseanne, Modern Family, The Office, etc. So it's basically this, like, tour of American television with a comic book mystery sort of bumping around the edges of it. Uh, and eventually, I'm sure, taking it over. And probably the end of the series will look a lot more like the Marvel movies we've become accustomed to. Um, but the beginning, I've seen the first three episodes, and the beginning is so, such a 
wild, fun, weird concept uh, that I think they really pull off. So WandaVision, I'm excited. How dumb will I feel watching WandaVision? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yes. No, no, no. (laughs) I I will feel dumb until I listen to your podcast explaining it to me. Well, right, because and, and Katie, the podcast is very dumb, dumb friendly because I, too, am a dumb, dumb. Um, so Joanna and I will Joanna will be answering my dumb, dumb questions. And then in the second half of each episode, another resident expert, uh, Anthony Bresnikan, will join Joanna to actually talk about like the serious, you know, nitty gritty stuff. Well, I guess kind of, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know what no, I'm going to They're going to no. hear it on the mic and be like, can you believe yeah. these idiots who don't no, understand no, any no, of this? No, 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 no. Here's the deal. Richard loves a theory show. This is a yes. theory show. So I'm really excited to talk to Richard. Like, I kind of know the answers, probably. Richard's going to, like, be having fun theorizing, and um, and that's going to be really fun. Uh, but, yeah, there's going to be a whole section of the podcast, first section with Richard. Uh, this is the Still Watching podcast that we do where we pick different TV shows to follow, where Richard and I will be talking about the show in a way that should be really entry-level friendly. And you won't have to have even seen a Marvel movie And I don't think you will have to even see a Marvel movie to enjoy the show, because at least these first few episodes, each and the episodes are about 20, 20 to 30 minutes. um, Each episode is also a sitcom plot. It's a sitcom plot that is solved in a half an hour. And so, like, it's a format that's very friendly to entry level watching you know, with some quirky Marvel stuff fit in there. But we're happy to explain, on Still Watching, we're happy to explain all the comic book stuff that, that you might not understand or be able to follow. But they've they've done something really smart in terms of making it newcomer-friendly uh, with the formatting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. And I think, I, Richard, I think you'll like it. Richard, are you a, were you a Nick at Night kid at all? No, I, 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 w- I was more like watch the Brady Bunch reruns when I came from home, came home from yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that I'm more a student of Pleasantville, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I think I know the tropes, um, yes. even if I haven't seen the actual source material. Yeah, there's a lot of Pleasantville. There's a lot of uh, Stepford Wives. There's a lot of other like fun stuff in there. They've talked a lot about the Twilight Zone as an influence. I would say there's some like David Lynchy stuff in there in terms of like perfect suburbia slash menacing weirdness also happening so i i just think there's a lot for a lot of different tiers of audience uh katie do you have any any one division questions uh no i am curious about how people who didn't watch bewitched um when they were way too young to understand half of it will respond to it because that was my experience for sure um but personally i'll get it i'm excited <laughs> the other joy of wandavision is paul bettany is so funny in it and I don't know about you guys, but my entry to the world of Paul Bettany was through A Knight's Tale, um, and oh, yeah. where he played Chaucer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he's gotten to do, like, a little bit, like, he was a very dry, sort of a disembodied voice in the Marvel Universe for a while. Um, but as an android, as Vision, he's had to play it, like, fairly straight. Kind of awkward, but fairly straight in the films. And here he just gets to, like go full physical comedy, funny. Uh, you know, they they modeled him a lot on Dick Van Dyke, um, who if you've never watched the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, you may at least be aware of the opening credits where Dick Van Dyke like trips over uh, an ottoman. You know what I mean? So it's just sort of like, this is the kind of, and that sounds, 
that's that, that might sound hokey. It's not. It's just really fun. So, uh, you know, if you've been if you didn't know you were missing this about Paul Bettany, I'm I'm really excited to say that this is here. So I don't know. Like, I don't know. I know that I'm like kind of in the tank for Marvel. So maybe uh, I am overselling this and should undersell a little bit more. But I was worried and pleasantly surprised by what I saw so far. So there you go. Subscribe. Still watching for so much more WandaVision. And we've got a we've got a Kevin Feige interview, uh, our first episode, and then we've got some great interviews for the rest of the season. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of value in that podcast, as there is in this podcast, Little <laughs> Goldman. Well, I can bring you some more value by listening to our interview with Emerald Fennel. Uh, Julie Miller did it. Julie, who is the best, we will have her back on the show for real again soon. But in the meantime, she's been doing all these great interviews. And um, Emerald Fennel, we've been talking about Promising Young Woman. She also is involved in Killing Eve. She also plays Camilla on The Crown. She's really uh, just kind of all over the place. Like, it kind of makes you wonder, it, literally anything she could do next, you'd be like, yeah, well, I guess so. Yeah, she's she could be a racehorse jockey. Why not? Um, so I'm really excited to hear this interview. Let's listen to it. I'm Julie Miller, Vanity Fair senior features writer, and I'm here with Emerald Fennel, actor on The Crown, where she plays Camilla Parker Bowles, the season two showrunner of Killing Eve, and now the writer-director mastermind, really, of Promising Young Woman, an exciting, striking, visually surprising film that opens on Christmas, starring Carrie Mulligan. So I'm so happy to be talking to you uh, about this film that, I, as I mentioned, I saw ages and ages ago, um, back when it was supposed to have an April release. But here we are now, gearing up for it. And so it's this beautiful, candy-coated pastel colored film it's it's so beautiful to watch and it ends up being something i did not expect it to be this revenge thriller starring carrie mulligan as cassie this character who has taken it upon herself to exact revenge on men in general kind of getting up going out to bars acting very drunk and baiting them and then confronting them about their behavior and also exacting revenge on a few specific men who did something very bad to her best friend um so i'm curious where did you start with the story like what was what was the original you know germ of the idea well, i guess i've been thinking about this stuff a lot as i'm sure most you know, women have for, for a long, long time. And I'd wanted to write a revenge movie that felt like it had a real woman at the centre of it. I think a lot of these um, sort of female-led revenge movies tend to be, like, incredibly entertaining, and I love them, but they, t they have women at the centre who sort of behave in a way that I just don't really recognise. And so I sort of wanted to... I, I wanted to write something that would sort of approximate what I might do if I wanted to wreak revenge. And, you know, given the sort of limited resources physically um, I have, and, you know, I think probably most women have, you probably wouldn't necessarily go down the route of the AK-47 and the passage. So then what do you do? So I guess I've been thinking about that for, for a while. And then I had this scenes sort of generally kind of come to mind and that's how things start. And, for me, it was a scene of a young woman on a bed, incredibly drunk, somebody undressing her. Um, and she's saying, you know, drunkenly sort of, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then she just sits up and looks at him stone cold sober and says, what are you doing? And I suppose that what are you doing is the kind of North Star maybe question of the movie. For everyone, including Cassie, it's just, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> 
And that opening scene is so familiar, um, sadly, just being out and there's, you know, a girl who's too drunk and she's being preyed upon by guys and we're all sort of complicit in, in those situations, I guess, in a way. How much did you go back and look at your own behavior and your friend's behavior kind of throughout the writing of this? Well, I think that's just a really, that's a really important thing about this film in general is I, I think it, it is not just about one person's journey. It's about a kind of cultural phenomenon. And, you know, I grew up, I'm, you know, in my 30s and I, I grew up watching movies where picking up drunk girls, getting girls drunk at parties was just part of seduction culture. It was really important that every scene in this movie, more or less, is something we've seen in a TV show or a comedy movie of the last 10, 15 years. I never questioned it. In fact, laughed at it, you know, because... It, it, it was so normal. And so when it came to then looking back at everything, the, this idea of, you know, girls waking up, not knowing who's next to them, where they are and walking home, you know, again, it was sort of a gag in movies and in TV shows. And it, and it was something that was so common, so common when I was at school, when I was at university, things happened to girls, parties, things. They were vulnerable, very vulnerable. You know, in the way that a drunk, you know, if you're a drunk guy and you're passed out, somebody might draw a dick on your face. Right. Or shake off one of your eyebrows. It's just so interesting when it comes to women's bodies. People have, very, have a very, very different response to that kind of vulnerability. But so when it came to, yeah, looking back at all that stuff, I think certainly I had to be really, if you're going to make a film about this stuff that at least is going to try to be as honest as it it can be and that's what I always wanted and intended I had to be honest with myself and go back and think you know there absolutely were times I should have intervened or I could have been more supportive or or we should have all insisted somebody you know reported something but you know things like this it's so much part of the culture so much I think I think a lot of us you know have to live with the fact that there was a sort of part of it was this being forced to joke about it being forced to be cool with it whether it was you or friends of yours it was sort of almost bad form to mind you know right. and it was kind of your fault and so that that coming to terms it's so, so this movie I suppose is not only about the things themselves it's about the culture that kind of lets it makes it possible and the culture that you know makes good people think that doing something bad is okay and that they know, and something, and I guess what I was interested in that first scene was about, was that like, we do know it's bad. You do know it's bad because if somebody you think is very drunk sits up and they're not drunk and you're frightened of them, it means you've been caught red-handed. And so that's the kind of, it's sort of about, you know, it's always trying to find a way of like visualizing or, or kind of creating something that sort of immediately undermines the sort of classic argument but this is all to say as well I would say <laughs> I would like to say that it's also I do hope that this movie is also it's deliberately not made to be very didactic or sort of um, a chore or anything I mean you know I, I really did want to also make a movie that was thrilling and enjoyable um, that but that also made you think it was really fun to watch. I walked away thinking, should that have been so fun, even though we watched Cassie kind of go to these exaggerated, heightened ways to kind of, I guess, exact her her revenge, her payback. But it, it, 
Well, I think, you know, it's a few few things. I think that life is very tangled and complicated and things that are beautiful are often deceptive. You know, so so it kind of made sense that the movie itself, like Cassie, would be very welcoming and innocuous seeming and familiar seeming. You know, everything about it feels, I hope, easy and pleasurable. That's sort of what you, that's what you want. That's what you want when you make something. And that's part of its trap. So, but again, as well, if you're, when you're talking about stuff like this, I think we have a very, as viewers, we we have a very um, particular idea of how serious topics are made, uh, are shown. And they're often shown in a very serious, gray way, very dour, very realistic. um, And I think, I don't know, it's very interesting that we think that these things have to be discussed in a certain way. Because for me, when I talk with my friends, they are always at their funniest and most savage when they're in the middle of something really difficult and troubling. And they always, you know, you know, I certainly will put on more makeup when I feel bad. You know, so it's never quite as straightforward as this is a serious film, therefore it has men in raincoats standing in right. the street. Right. That's coming seriously. <laughs> well, the look of the film is so much fun to watch. We see Cassie in some scenes, she almost looks like a doll. She's wearing these braids with ribbons in her hair and her wardrobe is like pink and blue. And it's shot in, in a way with that sort of candy coated palette and their amazing Britney Spears remixes, things like that. What was on your mood board for the look of the film? I mean, the mood board was was pretty close to the film itself. There was a lot of a lot of multicolored manicures. There were um, there was a lot of things like virgin suicides to die for. Some kind of sixties movies that tend to have a very kind of heightened palette. And you know, and it was just it was very important to me early on when I kind of approached people about this movie and and Carrie Mulligan as well. I sent the script along with the mood board and a playlist which had, you know, Paris Hilton and Charlie XCX and Brittany and all those people on it because I kind of needed to say really early on, I know how this reads, but it's going to feel different. You know, so trust me that we're not going to be staring out of a rainy window on this. Right. Did you ever at any point while writing think like, I've gone too far, this is too dark what I'm doing, what Cassie's doing um, to especially the guys who, I guess we can say they, they raped her best friend. Um, and that's, that's what she's looking to, to kind of pay back for. But at any point, did you feel like you had gone too darkly, like you had to rein it in a little bit? No. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, I didn't, you know, I, I mean, again, like, God, the things we see in revenge movies, the violence, the the cruelty that we see in revenge movies. I actually think it's it's really this this film may maybe illustrates what we're really scared of. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's so it sounds so unbelievably wanky and pretentious to say it's sort of an existential threat, but that is what she does. You know, would we all rather be punched in the face, or would we rather somebody turned up on our doorstep one day and told us that we weren't good, that we were not, and there was proof 
And, you know, I think everyone would take the punch in the face, wouldn't they? Right. It's much worse, much worse to be told you're not good. And so I think that's what is, is maybe troubling about this movie. But, this, you know, she's, she's incredibly damaged. She's funny and cool and clever and all of those things. But she's also completely and utterly um, broken. And so, you know, and, and she often doesn't know herself how far she will go. And she often does things that surprise and terrify herself. So, no, I, I never felt like it got too dark. <laughs> I'm afraid. What have been some of the more surprising reactions to the film? You know, there have been a few. I've been very touched and I've been, I don't know, I've just been so, it's been amazing having conversations with people after they've watched it. At Sundance, it was wonderful because people, you know, because it's such a small town that you, you're kind of, you know, in coffee shops and stuff around lots of people who maybe seen your film and so many people would come up and talk very openly and candidly about this stuff. And it was just really amazing. You know, but there's, I, I, when I was pitching it, I pitched the opening scene and there was a man who probably was about maybe my age, maybe, maybe, or maybe even in his early forties. And he said, I said, you know, I said, and then she sits up and she's sober. She says, what are you doing? And there was just this long pause. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? And he said, he said, is everything all right? And he said, yeah, I'm just going through every, I'm just going through every date I've ever been on. And I was like, okay. But you know, that's candid. That's candor. That's what, you know, that's what this needs because, you know, this movie is not just about the terrible things that happen. It's about being told they weren't actually terrible. You're just making a fuss. You're just being crazy. You're just, that's, it's the gaslighting element, the cultural gaslighting. So, you know, the fucking relief for Cassie and for, I think, people in general, when somebody says, oh my God, Maybe I was the bad guy. Maybe I did something wrong. Oh God, you know, that's in an ideal world, people would treat each other better and hopefully they'll, they're starting to now. But you know, the, the least you can hope is for people to be honest about their own part of it. And that's been, that's been surprising. People's candor on both sides has been surprising. Do you find in general that men are metabolizing the film differently? Well, I don't, it's really difficult to tell because I, try and stay I I'm you know being pretty masochistic I had to train myself a while ago not to look at stuff because you know also it's none of my business in a funny way how people respond to it and they have then you know I, I did what I think we set out to make some I set out to make something that felt very very true to me and that's not necessarily to say it will ring true with other people and it's not fair to expect everyone to like universally love it but but so I don't know only the, the only conversations really at the moment I've been having with people are people obviously because we're in a, we're in a junket people are fairly polite about it to my face so I don't know necessarily but certainly I've had um a lot of conversations with like um, the LGBT community as well. I think this has been just as much of a problem there as it is in the kind of heterosexual community. So that was really, that's been very, very interesting. I think it will, of course it will feel different to men and women because I think um, we're coming at it from very different angles, but it's going to be, but it's, you know, it's, it is uncomfortable for everyone, I think. Right. 
Let's talk about the crown. I'm obsessed with all things the crown. Um, and Camilla, it's it's interesting seeing the difference between season three, how Peter Morgan treated Charles and Camilla versus season four with the introduction of Diana. All of a sudden there's another character kind of for audiences to sympathize with. Did you feel like Camilla and Charles were treated differently this season versus last Things certainly get more complicated with the love triangle, quadrangle of it all. Yeah, things get more complicated and they're older. They've got more, you know, Camilla's got children, she's married. Camilla and also me on the show sort of, we were kind of outliers in that I kind of came in very rarely for a day or so and it was just a joy, but I wasn't, you know, wasn't there kind of all the time like Josh and Emma were. Um, And I think that's sort of what actually... I think later Camilla became such a huge presence, but at the time that we're talking about, I think she and Charles were still, for the most part, just best friends, which of course is just as, I think there are lots of people who understand their partner's, you know, best friend, who's, you know, they're slightly suspicious of. But so, but so for me, I kind of felt, it. I, I would sort of come in and I think Camilla, certainly the Camilla of like, Peter Morgan's Camilla and what, how we always discussed it was that she was just a woman getting on with her life. She had a lot going on. She was stuck between two incredibly demanding men. And I think that there wasn't any, I certainly don't think there was any, any intention on her side for things to pan out as they did. But, you know, it's the thing. And, and again, this is like even more important to say now, it is a drama. It is written. It is, you know, this is something that like, it's historical fiction. So, you know, I, I sort of, I always just came into it thinking, you know, with the thing of how is she going to sort of make the best of this bad situation was kind of how I sort of approached every, every scene. All right. Um, It's been said that she enjoys watching the show with a glass of wine. Have you heard anything? Anything? I haven't. I absolutely haven't. I I haven't. I mean, that's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) Only because I think, you know, if I saw anyone play me, if any of us did, I think we'd all be so, I I don't know. I just think it would be the weirdest experience because even if somebody was doing, you know, and again, this is just historical fiction, but even if, even if somebody did the most perfect impression of any of us, I think we'd all be very troubled. But, you know, it's like, it's like seeing yourself from a different angle or hearing your own voice or whatever. You're like, that's not, how, how did this happen? Like, that's not me. You know, we're so far away from, I don't know, it would be very existentially troubling to watch somebody play you in a made up, you know, fictionalized version of your life. I don't know, but sort of, sort of impressed that she watches it with a glass of wine. I don't think I'd have to, I think I'd be too frightened <laughs> to watch something. Right. But of all the royals, to me, she just seems like the one who maybe knows how to have a laugh more than the others. She knows how to have a good time. Do you have any favorite real life stories about her? There's very little about her. That's what's really interesting. She's very private. It's why she didn't want to have anything to do with it really. And getting sucked in, I think probably was quite difficult. But what was kind of important to me and that I, you know, lent on a lot was that she was head girl of her school. So she was incredibly well liked by everyone and a kind of leader, no nonsense. 
And every single person that I spoke to and every single kind of bit of research about her said that she was just funny and didn't take anything very seriously. And I think possibly that would have been one of the things that maybe underestimated the seriousness of what was happening. Because again, you know, it's very easy for all of us to look back over at things. But I suspect when you're in them, they are not quite so simple. I don't know. If you were to meet her, what would you want to talk about? Have you thought about, have you fantasy fiction a conversation with her? Oh God, no, definitely not. I really do think of the Camilla that I play as being a completely different person, actually. From the beginning, I sort of detached them. Um, But I would be like, oh God, I think I would ask, what is your go-to conversation starter when you just have like, because she must have to sit next to different people at dinner and lunch every day and not really be able to say anything but kind of light small talk. Right. So kind of deadening. So I'd like to know what her like go-to cracking someone open question is. Right. Um, Well, I am so excited to hear about your version of Cinderella, which you wrote with Andrew Lloyd Webber. When, When did you write that? So we've been working on that, I think, probably for about three years. And he's, he always loved Rodgers and Hammerstein. Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella was one of the biggest. They, they did a TV version of it in America, and it was the biggest ever um, rating. Still, I think, remains the biggest rating ever. And he'd just done, um, it would have been around the time he was doing or had just done uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar live. And it was just incredible. You know, it's just this event and 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 people loved it so much. I think it was at Easter. And so he was kind of thinking about Cinderella and and he wanted a version. He's very kind of plot led. So he can't, he doesn't really start writing until he has a story. And so we were talking about it and I said, Cinderella's a tough one because Cinderella isn't really a person. You know, she's a shoe more or less. She's kind of a, a, a person to whom things happen and then she's rescued by a prince, but that only happens because she gets sexy. And in terms of a a character and a story we can really invest in, I think that's kind of tough ask now. So for, for me and for us, it was about taking the stuff that we love about Cinderella and, and then, but making her and the story itself, something much more relatable. So in this version, it's set in, it's all, it's all the things I love about fairy tales, which is it, it is a proper fairy tale world. It's Disney on crack. Everyone gorgeous. Everyone's so gorgeous that if you're not gorgeous, you're just a pariah because they make their money from tourism. And so it, it, they're required. Sexiness is a requirement. In fact, it's the only requirement. And Cinderella is the only person who doesn't subscribe to this. And she's kind of acerbic and angry and kind of an asshole actually and her best friend is the younger prince who is a nerd who's a big fat nobody because prince charming is the sexiest man in the world and but shortly but a year before our story starts prince charming has gone missing in action and the queen has realized that their town is kind of going to pot so they need a new prince and so suddenly cinderella's best friend is has to become the kind of figurehead of the thing that she hates most and it's you know, it's really a romantic comedy. Wow. Will this ever make it to screen or? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, certainly for now, it's very, very much a stage musical. I mean, it's so, oh, I've never done anything like it before. And it's just, 
so incredible. The, the sets, the costumes, I've never seen costumes like it. It's like an explosion, the sets, beautiful. It's quite kind of, it's very much in and of a fairy tale world, but it feels very modern. Quite a lot of it's quite sort of stark and beautiful and the music's just amazing. And full orchestra. I think now that we've all been at home for so long, the idea of being in a theatre with an orchestra, hearing music you've never heard before, with, you know, this incredible costumes, incredible romance, you know, just, oh God, I just can't wait. I just can't wait to leave the house. Just get me out of the house. <laughs> you, you are so multifaceted and are able to work as a showrunner or uh, director, screenwriter, actor. When you think about your career, is there anyone whose career you're kind of modeling yourself after? Do you have an idea of how you want your career to look in 10 years? God, I wish I was, I wish it was planned as well as that. It's actually quite a scattershot situation. Um, so I wish I knew, I'd just be, I mean, really, I would just be happy to be working. I, I know that sounds so silly, but it's very, very rare to get the opportunity to do stuff like this um, with people that I'm working with. And I feel so grateful and I know it doesn't necessarily last forever. So I'd be very happy to still be working. And there are so many people that inspire me and particularly, you know, someone like Greta Gerwig's a great example of somebody who does so much and she's so wise and um, the stuff that she does is so interesting and but I don't know is the answer I think I'd, I'd I'd love to kind of make horror you know make really great horror movies I think um I, I love your perspective on what it is to be a female I feel like as a woman um you kind of go through this process of hearing what society tells you to be and then at a certain point you kind of realize that you've been listening to this unreliable narrator at a certain point and your your perspective shifts but i'm curious what were kind of the more formative experiences and you know real life awakenings for you around that subject it just seems like you and phoebe waller-bridge both have a really unique but true understanding of what it is to be a female and your way to articulate it and make fun of it a little bit really connects so much because it is spot on. God, well, thank you. I mean, I, again, it's sort of, if that is the case, it's very, on my part, it's very much an accident. Phoebe is a genius. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think the trying to be honest, trying to interrogate myself a lot and very interested in and it's not necessarily a gendered thing interested in you know we were touching on it before how far away from ourselves we are how little we understand ourselves I think is quite chilling and that and what we're capable of and I think men are used to being scared of themselves maybe we're not used to it because we're not, we've not really been allowed to be angry or unhinged yet. And, but with it's starting. And I think that kind of is quite thrilling, but something did, you know, the thing, um, something happened when I was about 15 that I think about a lot, which was, and it's a story I've told before, but I was getting cash out of an ATM and I was wearing a crop top and butterfly encrusted belly button ring as was the time um and there was a and I was in a kind of like nice you know 
posh part of London. And there was a woman who was probably in her 40s or 50s who was very well-dressed, very well-spoken, um, looked completely sort of normal. And she was sort of hovering nearby in a kind of, in an unusual way, to the point where I sort of eventually kind of turned around. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know whether to tell you this or not, but you're going to die of stomach cancer when you're 30. And I sort of just stared at her. I think I said something like, but I'm on my way to a party. And I think, you know, two things happened. And the first thing was, I thought, why would you do that? But immediately on the heels of it, I thought, I know exactly why. Because she just fucked me (laughs) for life. She just maimed me because every time I have a stomach ache or a period pain, I'm going to think that's what it is. And that is the most effective way of harming somebody I've ever seen. And I was both like horrified and sort of fascinated by it and impressed. And, and, it, and then eventually that I then used that in that um, I made a short film a couple of years ago called Careful How You Go. And in one of the segments, it's a kind of almost a reenactment of that. It's slightly different, but of that thing. And, and that kind of feeds into so much of, well, you know, in the stuff I love to Patricia Highsmith and Daphne du Maurier and Shirley Jackson, you know, how do women uh, express rage and frustration and desire? All of those things, you know, we, we still don't know because we don't see it or talk about it very much. We're just starting to now, you know, which is why Fleabag is so genius, why Girls was brilliant, you know, which we've just, I think, cracked it open and it's going to be tough. <laughs> Good. I mean, it's going to be necessary and it's going to be funny, but it's going to be tough because uh, I just think the darkness of something that's not seen the light, women's real feelings and real souls have been in the dark for so long, you know, I, it's going to be very interesting. Right. Well, I I really enjoyed speaking with you and I am so excited to see what you do next. But thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations. Of course, thank you so much for talking to me. It was lovely speaking to you. That does it for this week's show. Uh, We'll be back next week. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com where you can uh, read a lot about WandaVision from Joanna, that's for sure. You can read reviews of a lot of these movies. You can read about the Gotham Awards. Um, And you can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of how we record this podcast goes to Joanna Robinson. Four locations max, so much talking.